Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Happy Podcast Wednesday. I am so excited to release this episode because I really, I love chit-chatty podcasts. And that sounds so simple, but I like podcasts that go beyond just the questions where you really have a fun conversation with someone. And Rebecca and I really had that. You can tell we just kind of bounce off of each other's energy. I ended up having to cut a lot of the interview because we just went on the most unrelated tangents that, trust me, you don't want to hear about. But I love that because, you know, we had a really genuine connection. She is an awesome, awesome person unapologetic in every um every facet of her life as well as really learning and connecting with her indigenous heritage she talks about getting her facial markings or her plans to get her facial markings excuse me as well as her learning and then now practicing traditional abenaki uh, tattooing which is just so cool so um without further ado let's get into the episode but as I always like to say thank you so much for everyone who supports the podcast I'm extremely thankful and I hope you're all having a great week without further ado let's get into the episode with Rebecca Lamb when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. I'm so thankful that you're here today. You're one of the lovely people who I've met through the internet, which I honestly love. I feel like it's, it's I never would have happened if I hadn't have started the po- podcast in this like pandemic time, but I feel like it was oh. what needed to happen. Like the idea that I would only record podcasts in person now seems like crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, I love how social media has like academic social media has like blossomed during quarantine and during COVID because I feel like for a long time academics were so restricted in what they were talking about and how they were talking about it and then suddenly we couldn't do it the way we were and so people had to adapt and it gave I feel like it opened this door for creative freedom and like these you know academic influencers or whatever you want to say to like come forward. I think it's so fun because I've been able to connect with so many cool people just through that. Like it's been awesome. And I'm like weirdly grateful for the, you know, impact COVID had on like academic discussions. Cause I'm going to be honest, I don't want to go to a conference. You know, if there's a conference, it's awesome. Great. 
I don't want to, you know, I'd much rather attend in my sweatpants than attend IRL and have to like look professional, you know, do my makeup nice, make sure I look like a put together adult. So people take me seriously. Like I can just sit in a zoom meeting with my camera off and be taking notes on my, like, that's all I want to do is just sit and listen and take notes. And so I get to do that now without having the added step of like the social. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, you're from the East coast of the United States. You're from Vermont. Currently you're studying in Amsterdam. So kind of like, what was that journey to, um, wanting to pursue education in Europe? The real, like the main motivator of like, oh, I'm committing to doing this was the financial motivation. Um, I pay significantly less in tuition fees. My college fund is able to cover like more than just a semester of a year at like, you know, a really nice school. Um, My top choice school in the U.S. was Smith College, which is a great, wonderful school. It's my sister's alma mater. Um, They're incredibly expensive. The overall cost for one year would have been about $75,000, including like housing and textbooks and all that. But that's a lot of money. <laughs> I would like to use it for more than one year. Yeah. I would like to use my college fund for more than one year. And that was really like, you would use your college fund for one year. Yes, I understand so, that. Yeah. So um, when I applied to the VU, I had been to Amsterdam before um, when I just as a tourist and I fell in love with the city. I really was just in like the city center and being a tourist in Amsterdam is very different than living. In I can Amsterdam. imagine I've I been that. in Amsterdam. <laughs> so you find out the little nitpicky things that you don't like about the city once you've lived here. But I just I fell in love with it. I so it's funny because I took a gap year after I graduated high school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I worked with a program called EF Gap Year, which they're awesome. I've done alumni takeovers for them. They're a super cool program and they let you get college credit for doing that. And I got to do. I didn't know that. I knew about the EF Gap Year, but I didn't know they gave you college credit. That's great. Yeah. So I got credit through SNHU, which was awesome because I got about 12 European credits, which is six U.S. credits. So that's awesome. (laughs) Um, And I was able to use that time in Shanghai because I moved I went to Shanghai and I went to an international language school there um but my roommate when I lived in Shanghai was from Slovakia her name was Kiara and I would always talk about like oh Amsterdam was so cool like it was such a cool experience I loved it it was so fun and it wasn't even just like the coffee shops and the red light district it was like the museums and the art culture and the like alternative vibes of the city (laughs) which as a tourist the city seems a lot more liberal than it is I will say that Um, but it's still a great place and she was like you should apply to universities there and I was like no I'm not gonna do that and then I she was like do it and so I applied to the VU and I got in and I made the decision to attend here yeah and so now here I am (laughs) that's cool I went to Amsterdam for like eight hours because we took the train from Paris and god I guess that was 2019 yeah 2019 summer And I have to say that Amsterdam, not in a bad way, it just wasn't what I was expecting. What I was expecting for no reason other than like just my head was like a lot more laid back calm. Amsterdam is popping. Like you cross the street there is a task because there's the public transport, the bikes, the, um, the regular cars, like that was, it was a lot more bustling than I was expecting. I was expecting like a very laid back, like 
relaxed atmosphere and that's not how it is at all but to be fair I spent like such little time there all we did was go to the um the Van Gogh Museum and then we went on a canal tour and then we got a drink and then we headed back to Paris <laughs> yeah I will say that like in city center it's crazy because it's full of tourists it's full of people that live in Amsterdam it's full of people that work in city center that just want to be left alone and get to work and get home and they're annoyed because there's people clogging the bike lanes and all that the thing is with Dutch cyclists is they will run you over and they will cuss you out in Dutch it doesn't matter if they were in the wrong they'll still cuss you out and yell at you and call you a stupid idiot and so you kind of have to be like oh okay like I don't cycle in city center I cycle like from my apartment to the university and back. But I do not like cycle in city center. I will take public transport. I will pay for public transport. It's just, yeah. Cycling in city center is a whole other ball game. Um, <laughs> I think it depends, it definitely depends where you are in Amsterdam, but yeah, it's a lot busier. You have to go certain places. Cause like the red light district, it's packed. I'm like sure. if you go there at night, it's literally like sardines in a can. It's crazy. It's like, COVID. what, who's that? <laughs> Um, so it's one of those things where you kind of have to like figure out where to go and the places that have the less people and you're able to, you know, get to know people more. And I've made friends with a lot of bartenders at like pubs and stuff. And so I'm able to say like, okay, like I'm going to come in and wave at, you know, my favorite bartender and he'll be like, okay, go take that table in the back. And (laughs) he's serving like 16 tourists up here, but I'm going to go sit in the back by the pool table and listen to music and just hang out with my friends and that kind of thing. So you have to kind of know where to go, which I think just comes with living in Amsterdam. You kind of figure it out, but it definitely takes, there's a learning curve for sure, because I think a lot of people go to Amsterdam and I guess they expect everyone to be like stoned on the canals. They are sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, they are sometimes. If the weather's nice, you can expect a lot of people on a lot of boats in the canals and they're, you know, smoking and drinking and have a good time. But most of the time the city's very busy. (laughs) You have to kind of like, adjust to that I grew up in a very small town with like less than 400 people and so that's incredibly small wow yeah (laughs) so you know you kind of have to adjust to like tiny tiny town to like huge bustling city but to me I wasn't comparing it to home as much as I was comparing it to Shanghai Mm -hmm. which Shanghai was overwhelming all the time for me it was overstimulating there was so much happening all the time I couldn't you know, it was very stressful all the time. I never felt like, oh, I got this. I know how to navigate the subway. I know how to do this. I had no idea what I was doing 90% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember one time in China, this, you know, I went to language school there and I used to be fluent in Mandarin. I've lost most of it. I feel like if I got dropped in Shanghai, I'd probably be okay. Yeah. But it's been so long since I've used it every day that a lot of it has kind of faded into the background. When people speak Mandarin to me, I'm like, you have to speak slowly. Uh You got to wait for me to like go through the whole process of like translating and then thinking of my response and then translating that, which takes a hell of a lot longer than it used to. Yeah. But I remember one time I was so lost, got so turned around. Google Maps barely works in Shanghai, even if you have a VPN most of the time. And so I remember I walked up to this police officer and I was crying. I was so lost. I had no idea where I was. And I was like, well, I don't know where this subway was. And like four or five people, like these like Chinese aunties came up and were like, okay, you're going to go this way. And like, they had one person translating and like six people talking. I was like, ah, everything's confusing. And I finally got home. But like, that's the one thing is like comparing it to like China, it's 
so much easier. Yeah. And I, like it, I'm able to, you know, especially Shanghai, Shanghai is a massive city. And so that's definitely yeah. a huge impact of like, I wasn't comparing it to home. I was comparing it to yeah. Shanghai and comparing it to Shanghai. I vibed with it a lot more. Yeah. Um, how has the language barrier been for you in the Netherlands? Oh, so easy. I live in Amsterdam, so it's like a huge tourist city. So okay. pretty much everyone speaks English fluently. In the Netherlands in general, pretty much everyone speaks English fluently. The thing is, I've been struggling to learn Dutch because people will hear me speak Dutch very poorly and will not, <laughs> they'll just automatically go to English. I'm like, man, that happened to me the practice. Yeah. I'll try to like order my coffee for the morning at a cafe on campus. And the guy will look at me and I'll look at him and he'll be like, what do you want to drink? And I'll be like, okay, fine. <laughs> You're like, I was like, I'm practicing. And he's like, I got, I don't got time for this. And yeah. I was like, I get it. I don't got time to not know it. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's really interesting. And I love hearing more about Amsterdam because actually like my, my best friend, whose name is Rebecca also, she spells it differently. Um, she did a gap year after high school in Germany. Um, our high school just had like an exchange program. So she met a German family through that and then just decided she wanted to live there for a year. And she did a lot of like solo, well, not solo, like with like a friend or two, um, around Europe while she was there. And one of the places she spent a lot of time was Amsterdam. So our goal is to go back there together. So maybe we'll, maybe it'll be while you're there. We can link up. Oh, <laughs> totally. That's I feel amazing. Like every time I say that, I'm like, hopefully the pandemic agrees. <laughs> hopefully the oh, pandemic. See, I'm meeting. So one of my really good friends who beads like most of my earrings, she's beaded this pair that she's wearing now that nobody's going to see in this podcast, but these pet, this pair is called the Becca actually, because she oh, named them after me. Cause they're a custom pair that she made for me. Um, but so she's a beater and she's, but she's going to Paris in May. She's like, I will. So, and I'm still getting used to the whole, like, I can like, you know, in the amount of time it takes for me to drive from my hometown to Boston, you can I can here. be on a train and in Paris, France. Mm-hmm. And that's still a little mind boggling to me. I like <laughs> Paris so much. I've been there twice and I don't know what it is. It's not even like the basic like touristy things that I love about Paris. Like I just want to live on a balcony in Paris, like eating food. I don't know. It's the vibe for me. Like for some people, they don't like people have mixed opinions about Paris. And I feel like it's the people that are only there for like the touristy things that don't you like speak it. French? No, not a lick of oh. French. Really? Cause in my experience, Parisians hate Americans. So I always say I'm from Toronto, which is totally cheating. <laughs> um, and I know it's like incur- like wrong to do morally, okay. but I get treated nicer. Because Parisians hate Americans. I've never even been given like side eye. You know what I think it is? I'm from California. Like people are so rude in California that I'm just used to it. Like I don't necessarily expect my server to be like really nice to me. Like I kind of just expect them to be there. All the the two times I've been to Paris have just been like the most lovely um, experiences. But I always say in the seventh arrondissement, I say it wrong on Rue Claire. So if anyone wants like the best place to stay in Paris, like stay by Rue Claire, like the best um and then we would like walk to the Eiffel Tower every day and um have a picnic anyway I can talk about Paris I actually am glad you brought up the earrings because that's something that I've noticed is that you always have the coolest earrings and they're so beautiful is your friend I'm like an indigenous beater because they definitely like are that like vibe yeah so Audrey who I tag in most of my posts if I'm wearing her earrings um I cannot it's in a she's a G-boy um the 
word. It means the like Northern Lights. And, and so Wa'awate, she is on Instagram. She's great. I'll ask you, I'll send you her cast. You can tag her. There we go. I can't spell anything on a good day. Most of my earrings come from her. She's incredibly talented. I've been friends with her since before she was beating. We actually met because she had an Instagram account called White Girls with Dreamcatchers. And the Ojibwe culture is where Dreamcatchers originated from. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so she would post basically, you know, these kind of like call out posts that were like educational. They were like, hey, don't call it a, you know, don't make a dream catcher and like boho chic. And it was all these like white blonde, like Aryan women who were selling native culture. And she was like, hey, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And so we connected through there and then started talking. We talk probably at least once a day. Um, and it's just like random updates about our lives, random, you know, she gets a cat. She texts me, she has like two cats now and she keeps fostering kittens. And so, so lucky. Cause I get a sneak peek of all of her collections. And because I'm abroad, I'm like, Hey, can I reserve a couple bears before you yeah. launch them on the site? Cause she sells out so fast. It's insane. I'm really glad. Um, I mean, cause they're beautiful, but I'm glad that people can appreciate. And she has like a cultivated audience of people that are going to appreciate the beautiful art oh. that she makes. Totally. She's incredibly talented. She also is getting, she just got accepted in grad school. She's getting yes. her master's in anthropology. Oh my gosh. So like yeah. she's coming on the podcast next is what I'm hearing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, she beaded the piece that I'm going to be wearing when I get my facial markings, which I'm really excited for. That's so exciting. Oh my gosh. I follow an account and with someone who just went through the process of getting them and how happy she's been after she got them. So I'm really excited for you. Yeah. So I'm getting my facial markings when I'm home for the summer, which I'm so excited. I'm getting my chin done first. So it's going to be my chin and then my temples and then going down to my throat, which is going to be rough. It's going to be pretty painful. That one's going to be painful. I Uh, love the chin ones. I think that's my favorite place where I've seen them. Um, I think this is probably a good opportunity to just kind of talk about, you know, you describe yourself as unapologetically indigenous. So let's just kind of elaborate on what, what that means, you know, what your, where your ancestors are from. Okay, so my dad is Irish, and I always say Irish, I, you know, I say I'm Irish, and I'm native, but I always like to clarify that I am mixed, <laughs> um, but my dad's Irish, and when I say Irish, people are always like, oh, they roll their eyes, especially Irish, actual Irish people, but no, he was born in the U.S., but he grew up in County Tipperary, and like, <laughs> my grandfather, you know, owned a farm there, and that was a huge thing, and all my aunts and uncles and my dad grew up there, spent years living there, so I feel like I need to like disclaimer. He's like actually Irish, Irish. <laughs> yeah. So my mom's Abenaki and we also have Haudenosaunee descent. I think one of the big things in like native identity is people really struggle with like <laughs> understanding the huge blanket that comes with being indigenous. I think, especially on the East coast, there's a huge issue with people pretending to have native ancestry. Um, and that's it, you know, the statement is pretendians and that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the crazy things about this is like, I meet blood quantum by like federal standards. Mm-hmm. And so I'm l- like legally native enough to count, <laughs> which is weird to me yeah. that that's how we're defining ourselves and each other. It's a completely different issue. If you have an ancestor, a singular ancestor in 1635, mm-hmm. <laughs> that maybe was native or 
maybe was white and it just depends on the registry. That's completely different. Um, and it's completely different when you're not native at all and just claiming native ancestry to try and get the benefits. I think that's one thing that like, I always try to like, you know, especially live it, being from the East Coast and being from the Northeastern Woodlands, it's a huge issue that people struggle with. And I don't think people out West necessarily recognize that. Yeah. People wanna be indigenous, but they don't wanna take on all the trauma and the, you know, struggles that come with it. And, and for me for a really long time, that was like, I only recognized the trauma and I only identified with the trauma. Mm -hmm. And I've come forward as, you know, being able to really explore further beyond the stories that I was told as a child and the traditions that were passed on, you know, from my childhood and turn it into actual understanding and cultural knowledge. And so that's one of the things for my thesis, I'm writing on traditional Wabanaki tattooing. Um, which is awesome because I feel like it's not talked about a lot. I've been able to speak with Geo Neptune, who's Maine's first translected official. They're Passamaquoddy and they're Two-Spirit. So they're also within the Wabanaki Confederacy. They're amazing, super cool. And I've also been able to connect with um, a lot of Inuit and um, tattooers, which their tattooing style is very, very similar to ours, which is yeah. interesting. We have well-documented trade between the two. So it's been very cool to see how they connect. Yeah, that's um, and it's been a learning curve of like, oh, being native isn't just all these terrible things that I was told growing up and all these terrible experiences I had. It's also so much beauty and culture and love and liveliness. And I love being a part of that. <laughs> that's so cool to me that I get to, you know, do that. Yeah. So I meet people that are two spirit and that just really embrace like living as a person you know I feel like for me I for example I just finished taking California Indigenous Peoples class it's there's just a real like freedom of self that I feel like radiates from from Native populations I just think it's a really cool thing yeah I think it's one of the coolest things to be able to recognize I guess not necessarily like I, that's the thing is you can recognize and you can have so much pride. When I was younger, I was raised that being native was not something to be proud of. It was a thing and I couldn't not acknowledge it, but in any other way, shape or form, I would not, or we would not acknowledge it. And that was something that was like very strange to me growing up that like, you need to be aware of it, but we're not going to, you know, bring it up, like be aware of it because of all the terrible things that, you know, your mother and your grandmother and your great-grandmother, all this trauma that comes from that, you have to, you know, be aware. So, you know, they're bad people. So don't be like them, but it's like, they're also just humans. <laughs> and so it's been, you know, incredibly healing, I think, to connect to that part. I guess I wouldn't say reconnect because I was always connected, but I was always connected to the negative and not the positive as well. So I was always connected to the, you know, really painful, traumatic instances, but I wasn't connected to the, you know, amazing, beautiful, you know, the songs and the drums and the language and the tattoos and that kind of stuff was completely separated for me. Yeah. For me, it was, you had the stories as bedtime stories and you were told, you know, stories of ceremonies that people went to, but you were never told how to, you know, yeah. conduct the ceremony. You were never taken to the ceremony. Yeah. And so now it's, oh, this is actually a really cool part of my identity. And I can be very, you know, I think the resounding theme that I joke with my friends is, you know, Ireland was England's first colony and then uh -huh. Turtle Island or the US was another one. And so you kind of 
learned through, you know, your ancestors on all sides, which I think is cool. Multifaceted identity. That's, you know, I agree. I think too often, like, I feel like, for example, like you're, you know, you started that with like justifying like that you're Irish, you know, I won't even touch on you. Everyone knows why you feel the need to internally justify why you're indigenous, because like you're saying pretendians, but like even the need to justify, like I'm actually Irish, like as our, as just like world cultures, we're all mixed. You know, I think there's like, we need to stop perpetuating this idea. Like we're all mixed. Like we've all, we're all from all over the place. Like that's just how it goes. You know, given the exceptions of like certain people who have like lived in Africa their entire lives or lived in California and then in, in, on a reservation, you know, and they can trace their lineage for the most part, you know, we're all composite. And I feel like it makes us more interesting, you know? My dad is recently, uh, David Graver, who passed away last, oh geez, he passed away at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, he, his last book was recently published and my dad's been reading it. It's like the history of everything. Oh geez, I can't remember the title at all. My dad's been, he finally finished it, but my dad was a history major. He's a veterinarian now, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> but you know, that connection of like, be proud of who you are, no matter what that is. Like, yeah. I think that's a big thing. Cause like, even with the pretendian issue, like you have a culture that you could be celebrating. Why are you trying to take on ours? Yeah. It's like, you know, do your own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so I like seeing, you know, it's really cool to see like multicultural people come forward and own their multifaceted identities. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I, you know, I was taking a diversity course and I was like, I check all, you know, I tick all the boxes of diversity, which is annoying because I think that classification is dumb. While I think it's necessary in today's world, in my brain, it feels unnecessary because I think it's like a dumb, it's like, why do we need that? And it's like, I get like on a logical point why we need it. But like in my brain, we shouldn't need it. And so therefore it's unnecessary. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, so when did uh, the traditional tattooing come into your circle? You probably had heard about it, but when did you really start kind of like globbing onto it and practicing it yourself? Um, so I really got interested. I ended up emailing with um, several traditional tattooers within the Wabanaki Confederacy. And I said like, hey, I want to learn more. I'm interested in this. This is really cool. And I'm really interested in tattoos just as a thing. I'm covered in tattoos and they're all machine tattoos. So the idea that this, you know, cultural piece that I, you know, I was like, indigenous people from everywhere have some form of body modification. So it would be weird if we didn't, you know, in that sense. And so I started emailing people and they were like, totally. And then I was like, I emailed an Abenaki tattooer and I was like, hey, how open are you to taking on an apprentice? And she was like, oh, totally. Let's do it. And so, you know, I started doing apprenticeship ethnography where I was able to, you know, learn by doing and create this kind of, you know, actual work and, you know, turn it into not just something that I'm studying and writing about, but also something that I'm living. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's an interesting thing because I was talking to someone, they're like, well, how do you write about the ceremonies? And I was like, well, I don't. Like there's, there's some parts of it that are very sacred that are kept very close to my heart and I don't talk about them and they're not for every person to read and they're not for every academic in the world to read. You know, these are 
traditional, you know, things kept within our culture that are closed practices. And I'm not going to, you know, if it's something that we say, this is sacred, and this is something that we're keeping close to ourselves, I'm not going to publish it widely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like, you learn the balance of like, I want to be a researcher, but I also, it's my own culture, and I'm going to respect it. And so you, you know, you figure out that balance, which has been a challenge because I want to tell people all the cool things I know, but sometimes it's like, okay, maybe I'll just, you know, think about that and sit on it and say like, okay, that's not necessarily something that needs to go into written word or spoken word outside of these specific interactions. For sure. What are some of the tools that you use for people that are kind of um, trying to imagine what it looks like? It's, it's similar if you've heard of a stick and poke, it's a similar concept. Um, what are, what are the tools that you use? So we use needles. (laughs) Um, So it's normally groupings of like two to three, sometimes up to five needles. Um, And that we use um, India ink, which is just charcoal and water. Um, You can use tattoo ink as well. I know other people who use tattoo ink. Everyone has kind of their preference um, as a tattooer. I prefer tattoo ink because I feel like it's easier to work with than the India ink. I learned with the India ink, but as I've started doing with the tattoo ink, I feel like I get it better. And I'm able to tattoo a clearer, more put together design and it stays better. I feel like it like holds in the skin better. When you tattoo with the India ink, you have to go over it like a whole bunch of times. Mm, And I'd be like, you know, a couple passes and then it's good. Like, that's what I want. I don't want to be stabbing someone over and over and over and over again just to get like one line. Um, So we use tattoo ink and needles and we go in and obviously gloves and, you know, keep it sanitary. (laughs) And you hand poke every individual piece of the design into the skin. Um, And... historically they used to cut into the skin as well so they would cut into the skin and then rub it with a charcoal or gunpowder emulsion so it would be mixed with water or something and nowadays we have something called tattoo flu which if you've ever you know if you're heavily tattooed or if you've ever gotten a tattoo you might have heard of it where it's this thing where like I always say it's a tattoo hangover where like the next day you feel kind of garbage because your body's like what did you just put in me And we have accounts of that same thing happening, you know, historical accounts of people would tattoo themselves and they'd get these massive pieces and it would be such a, you know, symbol of bravery because they would sit through such a painful experience, but then they would feel like garbage for a couple of days and they'd be really sick and then they'd be fine, which, you know, the exact same thing happens today where, you know, obviously now we have like a term for it and people who are more heavily tattooed probably know more about it. I'm very lucky in the sense that my, you know, ink tends to settle in my skin really well and pretty calmly. So I heal really nicely, which I'm very proud of. That's my, you know, I'm very proud of my skin because it, you know, it likes to take in ink well. And as someone who loves tattoos and loves being tattooed, I don't like the process, but I like having them. (laughs) I like that my skin, you know, I don't get sick afterwards. I think if I got sick after every tattoo, I would not have a good time. I do sometimes feel a little hungover the next day, a little like mild which I guess is a little bit, it's mostly just like, oh, I feel kind of lethargic, but yeah, it's yeah. way less than what people back then were experiencing when they were getting these massive pieces, yeah. you know, chest to hip tattoo, like their entire torso tattooed. Oh, wow. And you were just like, okay, let's get that settled and tattooed in there. And when you get your markings, will they be, is it a similar, it's that similar form of um, tattooing? 
Yeah, so they'll be hand poked in um, by an elder within my tribe. Oh, that's um, and there's so it's like three to four hours of ceremony, and then like two to three hours of tattooing. So it's a full day experience. Um, and that's really it's really cool. How you um, tribe? That's I was I was curious if that was how it went. You know, with with the within the tribe. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So that's it's gonna be a whole day endeavor and potentially longer depending on you know how long it takes to complete my markings um I kind of made the decision just to break it up in pieces because obviously like the first markings are kind of like a really big deal yeah and I was like okay I have what the visual of the full markings will look like but let's do step by step because that's just the nicest way to do it to myself yeah oh I wanted to ask about the language because again I just took this California indigenous people's class and in California a lot of the languages have really just been lost how is that um what has that been like for you learning little bits of the language so eastern Abenaki the language is completely extinct nobody speaks eastern Abenaki anymore western Abenaki um last time which they haven't updated like the official numbers so according to the internet which we're trying to raise those numbers significantly um 13 people speak it fluently Mm -hmm. so it really is a or was a dying language I won't say it is because there's been a lot of really awesome work by some really awesome language keepers and some really awesome educators to work towards you know revitalizing the language and teaching it um that's something that I really appreciate, you know, because for a long time, it felt really hopeless. I'm not exactly the best language student. (laughs) Um, And so I really need someone to like walk me through stuff sometimes. And so being able to learn bits and pieces and phrases has been really cool. And one day I'd love to, you know, take a class and sit down and take it like every other language class. But right for now, I'm as content as I think I can be, unfortunately. Um, But the language, the preservation of that is so powerful. Being able to speak your, you know, ancestral tongue. There's something like incredibly powerful (laughs) about that. Being able to, you know, it's the same idea of like, if I was able to speak Gaelic, which I can't, Mm -hmm. I can sing some songs and I know some (laughs) phrases, but I don't know Gaelic super well. And it's that same idea of like, you know, you speak it and you feel that connection to, you know, hundreds of people that came before you and that's so freaking cool (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think probably particularly because there's so much oral history and oral tradition that that there's that even deeper level like you feel it but even ancestrally it's like speech was life because there are a lot of tribes there was there was no writing um at least not in you know not in prehistory um I I'm super I I honestly I love all of that I love your you know your journey and being honest about how you know you've identified with it but also we have hardly even talked about like anthropology what made you even interested in studying anthropology where did the where did the journey where did the thought start so it all really connects back to China which is you know we've come full circle yes (laughs) we keep going back to it um So when I lived in Shanghai, uh, in order to get college credit through EF gap year, I had to do a very, like a baby ethnography. And it was a very unskilled, I've never done ethnography before. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of 
reading how to do it from other people's writing and then winging it. Um, but the awesome thing about it was I was instantly hooked. <laughs> I read it and I went, oh my God, I love this. And I've always, see, in my brain, I was always like, I'm going to be the next Indiana Jones. And then I realized Indiana Jones was kind of creepy and like Harrison Ford, gorgeous person. Indiana Jones, a lot of those like adventure movies villainize indigenous people. And so it's like, yeah, it's kind of But I always wanted to do something that involved being in a museum. I wanted to, it, back then I was like, I'm when I was like a really small kid, I didn't really understand the difference between paleontology and archaeology. I will clarify that. But I was like, I'm going to be digging up dinosaur bones and finding new dinosaur species. And I'm going to be yeah. digging up these ancient Greek pottery and doing all this cool stuff. And like, I, I thought it was all the same, but I was also seven. So I start so every I talk at a school with, just so you know, I don't study dinosaurs, but there are these really cool people that are called paleontologists that do. If this piques your interest, talk to a paleontologist. <laughs> oh, totally. I see. And that's like the cool thing is like, I was able to say, okay, like I'm totally, you know, my dad was a big history nerd mm-hmm. and we used to dig up my um, <laughs> mom's garden. I live in a house that was built in about 1830. And so a lot of the property is an old, it's an old farm. And so a lot of the property has glass, old glass and bone buried. So when my dad would rototill my mom's garden, I would have a little excavation with my dad. And so I still have a cow bone that we found. And my dad knew it was a cow bone the entire time because my dad, like I said, my dad's a veterinarian. Uh-huh. I was convinced I had found a dinosaur bone. I was also like five or six. And my dad let me feed into it. Let me take it to show and tell, at, you know, in preschool and let me, you know, I'm going to find out what dinosaur this was. And, blah, 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 blah. and my dad eventually, you know, like eventually I lost interest because I was yeah. six and all six-year-olds have ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> and you, know, you move on to something else. But for me, that was like, oh my God, that's so cool. And I had the, the Egyptology book and the pirateology, which I loved all the ology books. I recently, I was recently talking to my therapist. I was like, I think it would really heal my inner child if I just had all of the ology books. She was like, I have no idea what any of those sentences meant. Yeah. But <laughs> go off. <laughs> yeah. Like I see that's, that's how I know I've made it as an adult. If I have every single ology book, because I have, I can't find them in my house. I'm pretty sure my parents got rid of or donated them to a thrift store or something, which I'm heartbroken about. Yeah. Like, how could they do that? Those books were my life. They really were. And it wasn't just like the fantasy ones. Cause I had like the dragonology mm-hmm. and the fairyology or whatever, but I also loved the pirateology. The pi- pirates are so cool. Nobody talks about pirates. Yeah. I feel like. Once you grow up, it's like, oh, you're into Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm like, no, I'm into real pirates. Yeah. And I think people dissociate the fact that there were like actual pirates and like that were different than this idea of like a certain dress and like skull flat. You know what I mean? Like people, it's hard to for people to conceptualize like that there were pirates, but they weren't like one thing. It was like all of these different marauders of the oceans that were like Grace O'Malley was a pirate yeah. who I, she is my queen and I love her. If, you know, I adore coolest person ever. Anyone who's listening, Google Grace O'Malley. I can't pronounce her Gaelic name very well, but one of my favorite songs is about, is um, an old Irish song in Gaelic welcoming her home after Queen Elizabeth released her. It's, she's an amazing woman. So fucking cool. She was a pirate technically. And Anne Bonnie, there were so many cool pirates. 
And I'm like, nobody wants to talk about pirates anymore. Yeah. But that was the thing. I had those books and I was obsessed. I would stay up. The thing was, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. I was always the weird kid growing up. Same. And I was an only child too. <laughs> oh, see, I had a bunch of siblings, but all my siblings were giant nerds, mm-hmm. except for my brother. My brother's less of a nerd, but he moved to Boston. So he lived in the city and my sisters hung out with me a lot more. One sister's a teacher. The other sister edits books for a living. So you can imagine we're all sitting together reading in silence. (laughs) And that was totally my thing. I was upset. I was like, I'm going to learn everything about everything that ever existed. And my dad, who loves history and decided, you know, at his final year in college that he was going to vet school and had to scramble to get all the requirements, you know, and, you know, he loves talking about this stuff. And so I would sit and I would talk for hours and my dad would be like, Rebecca, it is way past your bedtime. And I'd be like, wait, 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 I have more to tell you, you know? Yeah, that was, see, that was like my thing growing up is I loved that stuff. And I still love that stuff. I love Greek mythology. I love any mythology. I think folk religion is so freaking cool. I love Greek mythology. Any religion is so cool. I took a Zen Buddhism class and I was like, why did I not, why did I wait till my senior year to take this? This is so cool. Oh, Um, that's, it's so freaking cool. And you know, it's one of those things where like you learn so much of it and then but anyway (laughs) I didn't realize I could turn it into a career it you know what any parents that are listening out right now or you're like expecting a kid whatever and your child is like likes to collect rocks and shells and like dig in your garden I'm telling you right now they're going to become an anthropologist because every single guest that I've asked how they became interested in anthropology that is the universal answer so oh my god my dad from the national geographic catalog bought this rock tumbler that's another i would go out in my yard and in just my gravel driveway and come in with like arms full of rocks and we'd tumble them and i'd sit there staring at it in my dad's so my dad would be you know working on his computer and i'd be staring at the rock tumbler he's like back it's got to go for like at least 20 (laughs) more hours (laughs) i'd be like if i look at it it'll go faster right i loved my rock tumbler oh my goodness yeah we're just all the same ever it's still so neat to me i think i still my parents kept my rock collection my dad has kept my rock collection through me moving to two different countries continuously bouncing back and forth between the house and here he's like you get uh, he's like I'm not dealing with this this is not my problem I gave permission to get rid of mine but I was very much consulted about it oh, see, my dad's here. like on a rampage because he's trying to sell my house um, so I really hope he didn't get rid of it because I will be very sad but I don't think he would have uh-huh. I, I know him well enough that he's like doesn't want to admit to being nostalgic but he's pretty nostalgic mm-hmm. He also probably doesn't want to incur your wrath. <laughs> as oh, absolutely. He also knows I'm a hoarder. So he's like, I'm just going to, that can go in your bedroom and you'll yeah. deal with it later. This is not my problem. <laughs> yeah, we're at that age where the parents are like, do you really want to keep this? It's like, is it really nostalgic or are you just like hoarding? <laughs> oh, I am year? a stuffed animal hoarder. That's, I collect stuffed animals. So whenever I go, like I have stuffed animals from the Eiffel Tower. I have stuffed animals from um a skiway in Switzerland that I went skiing at I have a teddy bear from there stuffed animals from you know Disneyland in Shanghai like I you know I collect stuffed animals and my dad's like can you stop (laughs) he's like you are 22 years old you're almost 23 and I'm like and what's your point (laughs) like yeah your point is what (laughs) my sister's 40 she has fucking stuffed animals all over her house so you don't get to judge you guys are quite the spread she's the oldest Okay. The difference between the youngest and 
which is me. Mm-hmm. And the second youngest, which is my brother, he's 15 years older than me though. Wow. So it is a pretty big difference. Yeah. It's super funny. I never disliked being an only child until this age, until age 20. I was literally like fine with it all growing up. And now I'm like, I wish I had siblings <laughs> to come. Oh. I don't know what it is. Like if I wish they were like home at holidays or if I just want someone to complain with, I feel like I'm missing out on a social phenomenon. That's what I feel like. Oh, I will say like people were like, oh, so it must be like an aunt sibling or like an aunt niece relationship instead of like a sibling relationship. And my sisters, like, I remember I had a nurse, I had been hospitalized for, I'd been sick for something and I was, you know, laying in a hospital bed and my sister's there. And the nurse says that to my sister and my sister goes, no, she's my sister. I'll punch her right now. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like I'm like, while you're laying in a hospital. <laughs> oh, literally laying in a hospital bed. Like, can you not like, they're going to like try to like, I'm 18, but they're going to like report you to CPS yeah. or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> absolutely I was like I'm an adult but I don't know if they like can do something about that (laughs) just don't encourage them oh I love that um well the last question that I have for you is what are you reading or listening to right now I just always like to ask people because then our listeners can get some recommendations I'm currently reading geez, I haven't read anything outside of school reading in so long. This is a terrible, terrible thing to admit. Well, then reading Braiding Sweetgrass. Oh, okay. Braiding Sweetgrass. I've this is a great book. Would rec- 10 out of 10 would recommend. And I'm also reading If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home by Tim O'Brien. Oh. It is all about the Vietnam War. If you've never read Tim O'Brien, the things they carried, it's an absolute work of art. Totally read it. It's powerful and poignant. And I feel like it really exemplifies you know he's a Vietnam vet he's an incredibly talented writer um he's definitely someone that I would encourage everyone to read especially every American to read his work um he's just an incredibly talented writer but he's also an incredibly you know he's able to evoke like very powerful emotion so something else that you're really passionate about is advocating for people with disabilities in academia let's talk about that Okay, so I have um, something called fibromyalgia, and I also have PTSD. Um, p- people with PTSD are actually more likely to have fibromyalgia, which I think is a you know neat fact. I want to say fun fact, but that's it's not fun. It's terrible and fascinating fact. Um, yeah, interesting fact. Um, and I found in you know living my life, the academic world, the world in general, is not built for people with disabilities. And so it really kind of came to a point where I was like, I am advocating so much for myself. Why am I not advocating for other people? (laughs) Because I have the ability to speak out and have this platform and I want to do this. I think that's a big thing is like people with disabilities are like expected to like do all the things for them. And it's like, I have the time and the means. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't mind being loud, (laughs) so I'll do it. So last year I um, had the opportunity to talk um, at my university's TEDx event. So I spoke about empowering disabled students specifically within the university system. Um, That was a really awesome experience. Um, And I've been able, huh? Sorry. We'll link it below. Okay, perfect. Um, And that was a really awesome experience where I got to share stuff that I knew from lots of, you know, personal experience, but also experience of other people and also just 
you know, the world in general. It's, you know, I can say things and I can make a statement and I have the data to back it up. And I think that's the awesome thing is because I can come forward. I can say, okay, this is a such like a systematic issue that needs to change. And people are like, oh, well, I don't want to, you know, people don't want to necessarily deal with it. But if you're loud and you put pressure on people, they'll, you know, for the most part cave pretty easily. For me, when I finally, when I brought this stuff to the university's attention, it was like, oh, we never bothered or we never like looked into it before we had some people like complaining about it. And it was like, well, you should be looking into it before that. Um, It's an interesting choice to not. Um, I think that's one thing that everyone, you know, the world is not made for people with disabilities to be successful. And I think that's just a load of horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> um, respectful, I, you know, in a, a more political correct way. Yeah. I think it's a load of crap. I think it's a very, you know, I think the world should be made for everyone to be successful in. And if you have to tweak the rules for that to work, then the rules are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the times the rules are outdated. They don't make sense and they're not. Um, they don't, you know, work for a real actual person. It's like, this is the ideal situation I want things to work in. And so therefore I'm going to structure rules around it, you know, rules and regulations and laws around it. And it doesn't make any sense. Um, and so being able to come forward and say like, Hey, this needs to change. And I think a lot of times you're able to encourage people to listen if you're just loud enough about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm incredibly loud. (laughs) I know for me, something that I've encountered at UCSB, um, was the amount of hoops and paperwork you have to go through to get disability services, you know, minor mental health services. So I'll just clarify that just, um, but it, it was, UCSB also had a huge um, hacking and like private, uh, like cyber leak. I don't know what, how to say that really, but like a bunch of personal information from disability services was, was released into the internet, stolen. I don't know what the proper phrasing is um and when I was going through the steps to um make sure the university knew I'd be bringing my emotional service dog on campus um like the amount of things that they were asking I was like I shouldn't even have to write this down on paper like the amount of detailed things they were asking about my mental health like one of them was like what would happen if you didn't have your dog what why do I have to like justify that so it's just been shocking in that small instance to see how much there is to go through to get the services. You know, the services are there, but to get them, you have to lay out your whole freaking life on a table to some stranger. Oh, totally. That's a huge issue. And I've brought that to light a lot of times and I've been able to talk to the university about it. Unfortunately, Dutch systems are incredibly bureaucratic and, you know, they have very strict, you know, this is the way it's done. And it takes a lot of pushback to change that. And I'm still working on that, but I've been very adamant of it's exhausting for me who struggles with chronic pain and chronic fatigue because of that. It's exhausting to have to go to a doctor, to have to email the doctor, to have to get a letter from the doctor, to then submit the letter to the examination board or to the university and then wait for the university's approval. And then eat, and then I'm the one who's responsible for communicating to all my professors, hey, this is a thing. Yeah. And then even then, sometimes I have to do more steps where I have to appeal to the examination board about a specific issue. And it's like, why are you, you know, obviously the idea they had was we're going to discourage non-disabled yeah. people from taking advantage. In my experience, there's no one who's 
you know, maybe there's two people. That's what I was saying. And if there is, the let's just let those two and- people get the advantages. Like, it's not yeah. worth, like, who cares? <laughs> out of the thousands upon thousands of university students, there's maybe two people who would even think to take advantage. And 90% of the time, they're not even going to bother yeah. because it's too much work. Yes. Or it's just writing a simple email saying, hey, I need accommodation. That's too hard for some people to do. And so being able to say, you know, hey, you know, having student advocates and immediately saying, you know, making it easy to find them. I think that's the big thing is it's so hard. Like, how do I go through about getting this accommodation for this situation? And I have to go through website to website to website. I'm hopping between different windows and trying to find where I'm supposed to be going finally get there and it's 6 p.m. and I all I want to do is take a nap (laughs) ridiculous it's so I think in general I'm you know I want to advocate for people to do more work um on improving disability services also just to make universities more accessible Mm -hmm. I found that just on the internet you can see you know disabled people documenting how like their university is not wheelchair friendly my university is not I use a cane a lot of times to get around, sometimes a walker if necessary. It's, you know, my university has a specific handicapped elevator that you have to ask someone to get access to. Again, but my elevators in the university don't go to every floor. Mm. They go to, there's a set of elevators that go to the even number floors from four up. And there's a set of elevators that go to even number or odd number floors through like five up. So one, two, and three, I have to walk upstairs unless I want to take the disabled elevator, which if I'm already late, I'm not going to do that. So it's a whole process and a half Mm -hmm. for something that could really be really simple Mm -hmm. if they took that into account when they're designing the building or just designing pathways and saying, this is how the flow of student traffic goes. Let's look into it. Let's coordinate it in a way that makes sense and works for disabled and able-bodied students and students that, you know, are agoraphobic students with severe claustrophobia, that kind of stuff. Like nobody wants to talk about it, yeah, you know, especially yeah. invisible even, illnesses and that kind of thing. Or even for the student that falls and breaks their leg and needs an elevator for a couple of weeks while they're in a huge cast. You know what I mean? Like it's, there are so many, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, for example, I broke both of my ankles during the pandemic and I was like, I'm so thankful that we're in online school because I would have missed so much school because I don't know how I would have gotten around at least like the first week when it was really bad, you know? Yeah, I think that's the ridiculous thing is it's like, if I'm already running late, I'm not going to go track someone down to get who then has to go find the keys to unlock the disabled elevator. It's like, I'd rather sprint up a flight of stairs and then be in pain for two weeks because of that. And that's the kind of situation where it's like, you know, and even the balance between hybrid schools, sometimes, you know, I know people who cannot focus at home. I'm one of those people. I have absolutely zero focus at home. I would much rather take a nap. So I have to be either in a cafe watching my lecture, or I have to be in the lecture hall. Mm -hmm. I cannot be at home watching my lecture. It's not going to happen. And that's really, you know, yeah, it's the world is not built for us. The university system is especially not built for disabled people, but that, you know, we're just as able and willing and excited to pursue academia or to pursue any degree in higher education. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, if someone wants to be a mechanical engineer, they don't necessarily have to have, you know, a working leg. They can, they can have a prosthetic leg and be a perfectly, a perfectly capable, you know, 
mechanical engineer. However, if you make it incredibly difficult for them to access the university building and the classrooms they need to be in, nobody's going to want to do it. So that's a, that's a great point. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm super appreciative. We'll have everything for Rebecca linked below um, for y'all to check out. And yeah, any last words before we sign off? Not really. You know, <laughs> encourage your kids to be anthropologists. I don't know how else to, you know, 